And I do appreciate you being here tonight. We had a wonderful afternoon class. We must have between 25 and 30 this afternoon, and so that's always exciting in the afternoon. We go over that class over there, and it's, it's uh, much, much more of an intimate setting, uh, whereas we come on a Wednesday night in here, and you go as far apart as you can, just so you can't see each other. And, I, and uh, so I hope we have a, a good time tonight. If you do answer a question, be sure and say it loudly enough for all parts of the auditorium to hear tonight. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 17. We're going to be discussing another burden that God places, a burden or a message of prophecy of judgment. It's going to be against Damascus, and just a quick pop question. Damascus at this time was the capital city of what, com what country? Hmm? Yes, Syria. Now, you might remember we've talked about this several times, but Syria under, under Damascus formed an allegiance, a league, a confederacy with a nation. And we talked about this quite a bit. Anybody remember who that nation was that Syria formed a, a league with? Was it? Israel, right. Interestingly enough, they formed a league, Syria and Israel, to fight Judah. And then you see Assyria and Judah making an alliance to fight Syria and Israel. Well, it wasn't long before Assyria wiped out Israel and defeated uh, Damascus and Syria, and then turned on Judah, and so Assyria was not a real good partner. But let me read just a couple of verses here, and then we'll pray and get into tonight's lesson. Isaiah 17, 1. The burden of Damascus. Behold, Damascus is taken away from being a city, and it shall be a ruinous heap. The cities of Aror are forsaken. They shall be for flocks which shall lie down, and none shall make them afraid. If you're taking notes, number one, God's judgment upon doomed cities. God's judgment upon doomed cities. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your love, and thank you for blessing us with the scriptures. Lord, I so appreciate the book of Isaiah. It is not an easy book. And it is full of um, passages that are difficult to understand. But I do thank you, Lord, for the, uh, the help that you've given along the way. And I do help, thank you, Lord, that, that, uh, that the truths that we can ascertain from this book are life-changing. So please, Lord, walk with us this evening. Uh, illuminate the word to us. And Lord, I pray that the truths that we speak tonight will be uh, honoring to you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Here we go on our lesson, letter A, Damascus is told of its impending judgment. I read the verse, I'll read it again, verse 1, that the burden of Damascus, behold, Damascus is taken away from being a city. It's no longer a city, it's taken away. It shall be a ruinous heap, it's going to be destroyed. Number one, a harsh judgment against the capital of Syria. Like Babylon and Moab that we've talked about recently, they, we had burdens against these cities. God here delivered his prophetical message of destruction upon the land of Damascus, Syria. Apparently, Assyria's Tiglath-Pileser had already carried away many of the people of Damascus to Kir during the reign of Ahaz. 2 Kings 16.9, And the king of Assyria hearkened unto him, for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it, and carried the people of it captive to Kir, and slew Rezin. 
Number two, a prophecy during Hezekiah's time. And let me just give you a little spoiler here. I am amazed at the contradiction of commentaries. And walking through many of these passages, they're just all over the board on many of the applications here. And so, so I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm piloting a ship through these commentaries and through, uh, through the leading of God to try to get a, a, a clear picture of what's going on. And so, so some of these things like, um, it, it appears to be during Hezekiah's time. It appears to be. This prophecy seems to be directed to another judgment that would occur during Hezekiah's reign. In Jeremiah 49.23, concerning Damascus, Hamath is confounded in Arpad, for they have heard evil tidings. They are faint-hearted. There is sorrow on the sea. It cannot be quiet. And I've often said when I get to heaven, I'm looking forward to being under the tutelage of some of these incredible men of God sitting under Moses and having Moses teach the Pentateuch. I can't ima imagine. But just so you understand, I'm going to sit in the back row when Isaiah stands up to teach Isaiah because I'm sure I massacred my teaching of this amazing book. Letter B, once flourishing cities around Aurora will be destroyed. Verse 2, the cities of Aurora are forsaken. They, the cities, shall be for flocks, which shall lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Number one, a Damascus-ruled city. Aror was a city by the river Arnon in Moab. You might remember that. At the time of this prophecy, it was under the jurisdiction of Damascus, or arguably in the possession of Israel, but forsaken. As at this time, the Reubenites and Gadites had been carried away captive. The cities around Aror included Heshbon that we discussed in Moab's defeat. Number two, none shall make them afraid, the phrase says. Instead of homes covering the region, there'll be flocks of sheep. The houses will have been destroyed. There'll be no inhabitants left to put fear into the hearts of any flocks or invaders that come that way. Letter C. Israel's ten tribes and Syria would fall to Assyria. Verse 3, the fortress also shall cease from Ephraim. Of course, Ephraim is the name of the northern ten tribes, or Israel. And the kingdom from Damascus, and the remnant of Syria. They shall be as the glory of the children of Israel, saith the Lord of hosts. Number 1, the confederacy remained between Israel and Syria. I talked about that at the very beginning. This confederacy is still in place. Both Ephraim the northern ten tribes, and Damascus are together mentioned. This is referring to the confederacy or league that existed between God's people and the, Assyri and the Assyrians, not Assyrians. Number two, Samaria would be overthrown by Shalmaneser. The capital of the northern tribes was Samaria. It's likely what is meant here by the term fortress. It along with all other tribes under it, would be overthrown and carried away by Shalmaneser, who was the king of Assyria, who had made a league with Judah. 2 Kings 17.6, In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria took Samaria, and, or the northern ten tribes, and carried Israel away into Assyria, and placed them in Halah and in Habor by the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. Number three, Damascus would follow Samaria's fate. 
Assyria's operating capital, the location of their king's palace, was Damascus. According to this prophecy, Damascus and all the region that ruled in Syria would fall just like Israel. It's amazing because at the time of the prophecies, both nations were prospering. And so for them to even begin to conceive of, the, of these, these takeovers, is, is, uh, was just they laughed at them. The alliance between Damascus and Israel would end in a defeat to both. They would each be carried away, losing their kingdoms. Number four, Israel's glory would soon be removed. Verse four, and in that day it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob shall be made thin, and the fatness of his flesh shall wax lean. God would soon remove the glory of Jacob, or its wealth and dominance in the region. The pride that has swelled in the hearts of, hearts of them would soon be judged. Hosea 12, 2, The Lord hath also a controversy with Judah, and will punish Jacob according to his ways, according to his doings will he recompense him. Number five, Israel would be thoroughly harvested. Notice the wording here, verse 5. And it shall be as when the harvest man gathereth the corn, and reapeth the ears with his arm. And it shall be as he that gathereth ears in the valley of Rephaim. Now we're going to break this down in the next few points here. But the image is a man, a harvest man, out in the cornfield, and he's reaping the ears with his arm. The picture is a man with a sickle, and he takes and he whacks off just under the ears, and he grabs the, the, uh, the stalk with the ears under his arm. So he's carrying the stalks here, the, uh, the ears of corn, and he's got the sickle here. Well, the analogy is that's how easy it is for them to destroy Damascus here and Israel, just like whacking off an ear of corn. Letter A, or number six, like standing corn, Ephraim would be cut down. As a harvester would swing his sickle against the stalks of standing corn, then gather them in his other arm, so God would unleash the Assyrian army on them. The people of Israel would be cut down similarly, unable to resist the greatly overpowering nation. Letter A, thorough harvesting in the Valley of Giants. <laughs> the Valley of Rephaim was very well known for the ears of corn it produced. They were enormous ears of corn. They were exceptionally large and much to be desired. The word Rephaim literally means giant. So the area was known as the Valley of Giants, referring to the corn that was there. Because of its rare qualities, harvesters would take great care to not miss any ears, just like the Assyrians would take great care to not let any Israelites flee. Second Kings 18.9, And it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. At the end of three years they took it, even in the sixth year of Hezekiah. That's the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. And the king of Assyria did carry away Israel unto Assyria, and put them in Hala, and in Habor, by the river of Gozan, and in the river are the cities of the Medes. Letter B. 
few would escape a serious invasion. And here's the picture, verse number 6. Yet gleaning grapes shall be left in it. As the shaking of an olive tree, two or three berries in the top of the uttermost brow, four or five in the outmost fruitful branches thereof, saith the Lord God of Israel. So here's this, this uh, grapevine. And the harvesters came through and they took almost all the grapes, but there's this, just, just a few left. Here's this olive tree. And way at the top, there's just a few berries that they not, did not get. A few Israelites will escape the onslaught of Assyria and flee to safety. They are here likened to the grapes that are missed by harvesters or trying to get the few remaining olives from the top of the tree by shaking it. Isaiah 1.9, Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. We should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah, completely obliterated. Number seven. Hezekiah looked up and respected the Holy One of Israel. And once again, I love how God interjects these little bright lights. Here we've got these, this, such a heavy judgment against Israel, against God's people. Then he sticks these couple of verses of a little bright, encouraging light. Verse number seven. At that day shall a man look to his maker, and his eyes shall have respect to the Holy One of Israel. This is letter A, a possible reference to Hezekiah. This may refer to Judah under godly Hezekiah, who did call upon his God with great respect. Sadly, other than this, there is no record of any respectful look to God on the part of anyone in the northern kingdom during the time of the Assyrian campaign. Letter B, it's a possible fulfillment in the tribulation. This could likely be a look to the events of the tribulation when Israel which was then united with Judah, will look to their maker with respect, love, and great admiration in humility, which is so contrary to the way it is today, or the way it was in the Isaiah's day. Hosea 3.5, Afterward shall the children of Israel return, and seek the Lord their God, and David their king, and shall fear the Lord and his goodness. When? In the latter days. In the end times. That's when the children of Israel shall return. Number eight, idolatry shall cease, or would cease. Verse eight, and he shall not look unto the altars, the work of his hands, neither shall respect that which his fingers have made, either the groves or the images. Israel was thoroughly infected with idolatry at this time. Though in Hezekiah there was a possible limited fulfillment of this prophecy, more than likely, this looks all the way to the day of the Lord during the tribulation. All vestiges of idolatry will cease to exist by the time the Lord takes over to rule with a rod of iron. During Hezekiah's time where he did so much destruction of idolatry and the high places and, and, and cleansing did not mean that the hearts of God's people were right. Though he outwardly did all the cleaning he could, inwardly their hearts, many of them, were still devoted to idolatry. And they simply took their idolatry and went underground with it. So it wasn't that he eradicated idolatry, they simply went underground with it during Hezekiah's time. But that won't happen during the time of the reign of Jesus Christ. Number nine, a few towns will remain in Israel. 
Verse 9, In that day shall his strong cities be as a forsaken bough, and an uppermost branch, which they left because of the children of Israel, and there shall be desolation. By God's divine providence, Assyria will leave a few interior and smaller towns. The strong cities would be stripped of all their residents, leaving the cities forsaken. What would be left in Israel would be a small remnant, according to God's pleasure. Micah 5.11, And I will cut off the cities of thy land, and throw down all thy strongholds. So, Fort Collins, obliterated. Loveland, obliterated. The major cities are gone. What's left? Well, the way Johnstown used to be. <laughs> Small, little tiny towns are left. Number 10, Israel had forgotten God and produced an idolatrous nation. Because, verse 10, thou hast forgotten the God of thy salvation and hast not been mindful of the rock of thy strength. Therefore shalt thou plant pleasant plants and shall set it with strange slips. Letter A, God's anger explained. God reveals the source of his anger against his children. They had forgotten him in all their ways. Though he had been their salvation, the rock of their strength, they had directed their affections instead to the false gods of the foreign countries. Letter B, they had become a noxious garden. A noxious garden. The analogy here refers to planting a garden. Though they had begun as a garden of pleasant plants, they had taken seeds from the gardens around them, the heathen, wicked nations, the idolatrous practices of the Phoenicians, the Syrians, the Moabites, etc., had been planted among their own, producing a crop not at all resembling God's original intent. That they went to the various, the various people groups, and they borrowed what they were doing, they brought it and added to their religious practices. Be like a small committee of our church going to the Far East, going perhaps to some, some Buddhist temple in Tibet, and going in and being enchanted with this amazing gong. And, and they, would, they, would, they would hit this gong at certain times, seemingly appropriate times during the day, and then they would fall down and they would kneel. I'd say, that's a pretty cool thing. So they went and they bought a gong and they brought it and put it on the platform here. And every so often they had me ring the gong, bong, and I'd get down and I'd kneel in addition to everything else we're doing here. It's not a big deal. I mean, can you find anything in the Bible that says you should have a gong on the platform? Not, not a big deal. But interesting, one thing led to another. Before long, along with Jehovah worship, there was a little idol over here. And, and as long as we pay homage to Jehovah God, he's not going to care if we also kneel down and worship Buddha for just a little while. That's, that's going to be all right. As long as we do the gong, because we're going to tie it all together, and it'll make sense then, because we're simply borrowing from, and that's what God was judging here. They had become a noxious garden. Number two, God's judgment described. Letter A, a time of sorrow and despair was coming. In verse 11, In the day thou shalt make thy plant to grow, 
In the morning shalt thou make thy seed to flourish. But the harvest shall be a heap in the day of grief and of desperate sorrow. Life for the Israelites would continue as normal, sowing and reaping, expecting a good harvest from God's blessings. During the time they're intermingling all these heathen practices, they're still going out and sowing seeds. They're still harvesting. They're still bringing in the crops, expecting God to bless them. Soon, however, because of their wickedness, their harvest would be destroyed, or here called a heap, meaning a mess, due to the destruction of the Assyrians. That day would bring grief and here desperate sorrow. In Isaiah 65, 13 and 14, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but ye shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but ye shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but ye shall be ashamed. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of heart, but ye shall cry for sorrow of heart, and shall howl for vexation of spirit. Letter B. Judgment would be deafening. Deafening. Verse 12, Woe to the multitude of many people, which make a noise like the noise of the seas, and, the rushing, and to the rushing of nations, that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. God's judgment would soon swarm the land, as the Assyrians and Babylonians would march over them, destroying everything in their path. Sounds a little bit to me like Sherman's march through the south, destroying everything in his path. The sound would be fearsome and deafening. This would have been fulfilled through the sieges, followed by the deportations of God's people. Letter C. The oppressing nations will be themselves, themselves judged. Verse 13. The nations shall rush like the rushing of many waters. But God shall rebuke them. They shall flee far off and shall be chased as the chaff of the mountains before the wind and like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. So those nations that rush like many waters or the nations of Assyria and Babylon that God uses to judge his people, God shall rebuke them. <laughs> and they shall flee far off and be chased as chaff. So number one, chastening nations rebuked by God. Assyria and Babylon were both rebuked by the Lord for chastening God's people. That describes the prophecy, at least in part. Number two, future rebuking in that day. The greater fulfillment will occur in a future time when God will drive out all the Gentile nations from the land of Israel. That event has not yet occurred, but will when Jesus becomes king. It's interesting, but at the time that God said to Abraham, he said, I want you to look this way, and now look this way, and now look this way, and now this way. Everything, as far as your eye can see, that's the land that I'm going to give you. Well, until this day, today, all of that land has never been possessed, even under great Solomon's reign. It's not all been possessed, but it will under King Jesus. It will all, all of it will be possessed at that time. Hosea 13, 3, Therefore they shall be as the morning cloud, and as the early dew that passeth away, 
as the chaff that is driven with the whirlwind out of the floor and as the smoke out of the chimney. Letter D, Assyria's army was annihilated. Verse 14, And behold, at eventide trouble, and before the morning he is not. This is the portion of them that spoil us, and the lot of them that rob us. I can't help but think that this is a look at God's fierce judgment upon the Assyrian army. In the evening they assembled as a vast army of 185,000 troops. In the morning they were all dead corpses. Remember those lepers that went out? They leave the camp. Everybody's starving to death. And they, they leave the camp. And they sneak over. What's the worst that could happen to us? We die. Well, we're going to die here. They go over and they find 185,000. The whole army there is laying dead. And all their food <laughs> is still there. They had an immediate party before sharing it with everybody back, back in the camp. 2 Kings 19.35, it came to pass that night, the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians an hundred, fourscore, and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. Number three, a glimpse at Israel's restoration. Letter A, an African messenger of hope. Number one, God sends a message to an African country. Isaiah 18.1, Woe to the land shadowing with wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. Letter A, determining the location. Though the exact location described is not clear, it seems like the land is likely Ethiopia or possibly Egypt. It's beyond the rivers of the Nile and Euphrates. Letter B, woe, W-O-E, woe or ho. <laughs> Woe in this usage is usually translated whole. This may not be a passage declaring a judgment upon the African country. It may simply be a salutation to them. Letter C. The land of buzzing. <laughs> I found this funny. The land of buzzing. It's called woe to the land shadowing with wings. The word shadowing here, literally translated, is buzzing or whirring. The shadowing with wings could refer to the vast swarms of insects, like locusts that often plague the area. There are frequent infestations even today, and I've seen documentaries, you might as well, in Africa where the sky is completely black from the locusts, the various insects, and they completely eat up all the vegetation at the time, causing great, great famines. The land of buzzing. Number two, the African nations or nation was tasked with messaging Israel. The African nation was tasked with messaging Israel. Verse two, that sendeth ambassadors by the sea, even in vessels of bulrushes upon the waters. Who do you remember was in a vessel of bulrushes? Moses, right. Saying, Go, ye swift messengers, to a nation scattered and peeled, to a people terrible from their beginning hitherto, a nation meted out and trodden down, whose land the rivers have spoiled. Well, first of all, letter A, 
vessels of bulrushes. Let's just get into it. The nation in question sends ambassadors to Israel in boats or ships. Here they're called vessels of bulrushes. These could refer either to boats that were common use at the time that were found on the Nile. They did not allow for a sturdy hull and were unsafe for rough waters. It could also refer to the wing-shaped sails of their ships at the time. Letter B. Frequent guests in Israel. Egypt and Ethiopia both had a long history of sending messengers to Israel. Who was a very famous guest that showed up in Solomon's court? The Queen of Sheba, that's right, from Ethiopia. She came and was overwhelmed by his vast kingdom. Let her see. A nation scattered and peeled. Called a nation scattered and peeled, Israel could, could certainly bear that title, as it had been peeled and scattered frequently through the ages. His history has been terrible, is the word it used, or overwhelmingly harsh. Letter D, Israel has been flooded with nations. Referring to a land the rivers have spoiled. Gentile nations have poured through the land of Israel, such as Assyria and Babylon. Liken it to rivers that spoiled, or rivers have spoiled. Letter B, a nation restored. Number one, God's restoration of Israel will become world news. Verse 3, all ye inhabitants of the world and dwellers of the earth, see ye when he lifted up an ensign on the mountains, and when he bloweth a trumpet, hear ye. What's an ensign? Flag, right. When he lifteth up an ensign, a flag, on the mountains. The African, likely Ethiopian, messengers were tasked to spread the word far and wide of God's judgment upon Israel. The full fulfillment of this prophecy likely looks again to the day of the Lord. God will hold up an ensign or flag. It sounds to me like God's got this flag and he's just waving it up there, just waving it for, this, for all to see, drawing all attention to himself. The events surrounding the full establishment of Israel and of Jesus Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords will be loudly heralded for all the world to take notice. And can you imagine if, for some reason, it is the Lord Jesus and he's waving this flag? Well, understand, all the world will see it immediately. The technology, if, we still, if they still have the technology that we have today, they will watch him around the world as he waves that flag. A nation restored. Number two, God will enjoy blessing his people once again. Verse four, for so the Lord said unto me, I will take my rest and I will consider in my dwelling place like a clear heat upon herbs and like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. God is described as leisurely resting as Israel enjoys its time of blessing. Like the bright sun on the crops following a refreshing rain, Israel will be blessed and God will be glorified. Psalms 132, verse 13, For the Lord hath chosen Zion. He hath desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever. 
Here will I dwell where I have desired it. Was God typically pleased with his people throughout the ages? As he looked down and saw the Israelites, were they always pleasing to him? Were they a breath of fresh air and incense that he enjoyed? A frustrated the daylights out of them. Frustrating group of people. They're stiff-necked, hard-hearted, causing him to draw a line and cause them to go off into bondage for 70 years. But what we have a tendency of forgetting is God was looking way beyond that to enjoying them in a blessed time in eternity. His people, for he was showering them with blessings once again. Roman numeral 4, a return to the crisis at hand. So as God is so good to do, he gives a, just a little breath of fresh air <gasps> before putting their heads back underwater with the judgment. Here, now we're going to go back to Isaiah's judgment of what's really going to happen. A return to the crisis at hand, letter A, God reminds them of his impending judgment. Verse 5, for afore the harvest, when the bud is perfect and the sour grape is ripening in the flower, he shall both cut off the sprigs with pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches. Though God gave Israel a sneak peek of their glorious restored future. Oh, it's going to be so wonderful, so glorious. God will once again enjoy blessing Israel. But this is what's going to happen immediately. This is what you're going to be seeing soon. His judgment had to come first. Before the crop was ready for harvest, pruners would come and decimate the plants. Israel's crop had to face the wrath of God before they could enjoy his blessings. Isaiah 17, 11, In the day shalt thou make thy plant to grow. In the morning shalt thou make thy seed to flourish. But the harvest shall be a heap or a mess in the day of grief and of desperate sorrow. Letter B, in that day there will be great carnage. Verse 6, they shall be left together under the fowls of the mountains and to the beasts of the earth. And the fowls shall summer upon them, and all the beasts of the earth shall winter upon them. Though this could refer to an intermediate judgment by Assyria. It sounds to me a whole lot like what's going to happen in the day of the Lord. Toward the end of the tribulation, Many armies will be cut down on Israel's mountains at that time, and there will be a heap or a carnage that God will prepare the birds to help clean up. We know that time is Armageddon. Revelation 19, 17, and 18, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And lastly, Roman numeral 5, God will receive the present he has wanted for so long. Verse 7, what kind of a present does God want? Well, here we are told what God wants. Verse 7. In that time shall the present be brought unto the Lord of hosts, of a people scattered and peeled, and from a people terrible from their beginning hitherto, a nation meted out and trodden underfoot, whose land the rivers have spoiled, 
to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, the Mount Zion, in the day of the Lord. Jews will return to their homeland from all parts of the globe in response to God's call. Here he calls their return his present. Coming back to him from all parts of the globe, a present to God. It will consist of people scattered and peeled. Israel, after enduring centuries of God's judgment for their proud, insolent idolatry, would finally come home to enjoy the blessings of their king. Zechariah 14, 16, and 17, And it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. God will rule, Jesus will rule, King of kings and Lord of lords. There's chapter 17 and 18, Isaiah. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your love. And thank you for giving to us this amazing piece of prophecy, much of which has been fulfilled. And I look to a, a date that's not even occurred yet, the day of the Lord. Lord, thank you for the perspective that you have. Lord, the fact that you can see all things. I thank you, Lord, for choosing the nation of Israel. Lord, we know it's a right decision. Lord, thank you that you're able to enjoy them right now as you, in eternity future, are enjoying their presence. I pray, Lord, that you might continue to use Isaiah to be a, a, a source of strength for us, leading us and guiding us. I pray, Lord, that you might be honored and glorified. Go with us the rest of this week, for we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.